0: Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Clayton Chartres, who is assistant professor of sociology at the University of Toronto, about under the cover: the creation, production, and reception of a novel. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This is a great book. I mean, I partially I have a vested interest because it it's kind of um, deals with a load of stuff I'm interested in. But just in general, I found it you know really interesting, really easy to read, and, and a really kind of straightforward introduction to both a lot of sociological theory and the publishing industry as well. So, so kind of well done on, on the book. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, uh,
1: there, it, it, it was a massive struggle trying to make uh, a, readal- a readable book that uh, had something to say to other sociologists as well.
0: And yeah, I mean, th- that would be quite an interesting place um, to start with, I think. you know, If you would tell me a bit about the, kind of the process of developing the book and where it kind of fits in with, I guess, your sort of broader academic project, dare I say it. Sure. Yeah. Uh,
1: You know, I think I think like most authors, uh, I really just oriented towards trying to write a book I wanted to read and that I wish existed and didn't exist. I think uh, after you're in the academic game for a little while, the world starts to feel really small and you realize, oh, wait, if I don't do this thing, it might not get done. Uh, Where I think is when you're younger, you're always afraid that everybody's doing the same thing you're doing. So in my life, it's like background stories of like, how things get made that have always excited me. When uh, DVD commentaries first came out, I found myself listening to the director commentaries and not even watching the movies. Uh, so I really wanted to get behind the scenes of something all the way from start to finish. Uh, it wasn't an intellectual idea at first. It was just something I love and something I always want to read. So the book really came about that way.
0: And, and you concentrate on this one book, uh, Jarrett's Phil, by Cornelia Nixon. And I mean, we, we can't really say anything about under the cover without knowing a bit about both Cornelia as, as the author uh, and also Jarrett's little book. And I guess one route into that is is maybe to to think about her in terms of her social location and the idea of her being a kind of individual author. And one of the things that the book does is balance that kind of the sense of her as a you know as an individual author who's talented with her kind of social location and the. Um, the broader social context that that gives rise to her writing.
1: Sure. Yeah. So Cornelia Nixon, uh, Jerksville came out in 2009. It was her third uh, work of uh, literary fiction or what she uh, was intended, uh, had intended to be received as a work of literary fiction. She is a professor, which uh, of uh, first English and then an MFA program, which has a huge effect on the fact that she's even a novelist at all. So part of her social location, uh, is this massive rise uh, in MFA programs in the United States, really starting in the 1970s as a form of indirect government intervention in the United States. Um, unlike uh, Western Europe or in Canada, where artists are still largely uh, funded directly from the government, the, uh, because of conservative censure in the United States, uh, the government had to figure out a way to hide money to working novelists. Uh, and they did so through... Uh, really providing the seed grants uh, by coaxing universities into applying for seed grants to fund MFA programs. So uh, Cornelia Nixon like takes a decade to write a novel, and she really couldn't do that without this uh, indirect governmental subsidy. In terms of her writing and world as a novelist, like most novelists, I think we tend to think of writing as something that's done alone. Um, just in the general world, it's because we don't see novelists. When we see two people walking down the street, um talking to each other we don't say oh, that might be two novelists, and they're collaboratively creating to solve a problem with their novel. It's just hard to observe those things. Uh, So while Cornelia Nixon financially is uh, able to afford to be a writer because of uh, the time and place she's writing in, uh, like all novelists, she uh, really uh, creates collaboratively in these groups that uh, take place over the phone or behind the closed doors of private homes. Um, So the phrase she used uh, to describe her writing life is it's just really a series of Friends saving her from herself, really uh, creating collaboratively together
0: in some kind of fascinating, you know, urban settings as well. Like, you know, there's a lot of a lot of discussion of the Starbucks and you know this, this kind of stuff, and I, I think we'll we'll kind of get into that as we get into the story of the book. But w- one thing you kind of gesture towards, you know, friends sort of yeah. <laughs> saving her from from herself, points really clearly to the kind of social nature of yeah. um, artistic or authorial authorial that's a word creativity and i yeah. guess this is a moment where we can link directly um to some of the more theoretical work that goes on in the book and i guess the, the big question there is is the idea of a field uh, yeah. and the book draws on this idea about fields of creation fields of production fields of reception you know art commerce and and meaning And i guess yeah Uh, defining what a field is and thinking about these three fields that are crucial to the book uh, would be really useful sure so you know a field even for uh tony
1: academics fields are kind of muddy concepts uh and end up being kind of tautological but i think the best way to describe it is if you think of any setting or uh type of social arrangement in which uh, everybody in it is kind of orienting towards the same thing. Uh, They kind of have the same taken for granted reality uh, and they're positioning uh, against each other. Uh, That would be a field. Uh, So if there's uh, the same uh, commonsensical ideas about the way things go, uh, what's good or what's bad. So um, for authors, Uh, We kind of know authors live in a field because they uh, think about themselves in relationship to other authors when they say everybody. They, of course, don't mean everybody in the world and they don't mean publishers and they don't mean readers. Everybody for them means other authors. Right. Um, And they're thinking about their lives and thinking about their creation uh, in relation to what other authors are doing. Uh, So an example I use in the book is uh, the status of Marion Etlinger and. Uh, We can really tell that these are different fields because of uh, the relationship to this woman named Marion Etlinger. And Marion Etlinger and who she is means an entirely different thing to authors than it does to book publishers than it does to readers. And we'll start with the easy one. Uh, To readers, uh, the name Marion Etlinger means uh, probably nothing. Uh, It's entirely meaningless. Uh, And who Marion Etlinger is, is she is a very famous Uh, author photographer so she is the most high-status person to have take the author picture of the author uh, in the back of the book Uh, so for authors uh, it's even a verb to be etlingered and to be etlingered is to signal that you're very high status in the field you have arrived you are not to be trifled with so uh, authors notice all the time if uh, somebody has been etlingered or not Uh, and that's a very meaningful thing Uh, often this different field of publishers Uh, They know who Marion Etlinger is because oftentimes they have to pay for the photo, but it's just vanity on the part of the author. They find it ridiculous. Uh, They would never tell an author that uh, they think uh, it's silly, but they kind of uh, backbite and make jokes about authors requesting to be Etlingered. uh, And it doesn't serve any purpose in the world of publishing in the world they live in. They really just pay for Etlinger photos as a gift to their authors. Uh, so we kind of know, uh, just through the example of Mary Netlinger, uh, she's, uh, a photo by her is deeply meaningful in this field among authors. Um, it doesn't really mean anything, and it's just kind of a joke in the field of publishers and among readers. Uh, Mary Netlinger might as well not exist at all. She's, it, her existence is totally unobservable to us.
0: What's useful about that example, I think, is, is the complementarity um, or the, maybe the kind of lack of antagonism that you've drawn yeah. across those three fields. In, in the kind of classic discussion of, of cultural fields, there's always a sense that, you know, commerce, uh, meaning, creation, art, are, are somehow intention. Um, and, you know, that we can debate the minutiae of budging, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Uh, but I, I really like actually the way that you, you sort of position um, these three fields as actually complementary of each other, that, you know, in that example – The public might see that particular photograph, be able to recognize that this person must be an author because they kind of look like that. Publishers, you know, see it as a kind of a bit of a chore or a bit, you know, a bit of a, a joke or an obligation. And for authors, it has that kind of moment of I've arrived. I'm a real author now, you know. And in that sense, you know, it's not a set of antagonisms. It's actually a set of compliments.
1: Yeah, and I think that's absolutely right. And I'm really glad you noted that. You know, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right in the way that uh, when people do characterize the relationship between fields, which I really, uh, we don't do enough, uh, they tend to think of them as uh, antagonistic or uh, they focus on these uh, the sparks and bomb moments where something happens somewhere outside of a field and everything changes within it. But in day-to-day life, uh, these are three arenas of social life, which is just a less fancy way to say field, uh, that are really highly interdependent on each other. So most of the time, things are functioning well. It's, uh, it's almost exceptional when things kind of break down between these fields. And when they do break down, everybody is scrambling to get them back in balance because everybody needs each other, right? Publishers can't publish without authors or readers. Readers can't read without authors or publishers uh, using broadly um, because of self-publishing, of course.
0: (laughs) It's interesting that the, uh, that kind of comments about, about self-publishing because one one of the kind of, almost the kind of great myths uh, that, happens because of the interaction of fields is the idea of author having a particular kind of status Um, and you know we've got on the one hand discussions about the idea that well anybody could be an author you know you can self publish you can put something up on Amazon for whatever it is you know a dollar or a pound and you know that might go viral and you know you might be the next big thing or you know well if you've got a random house or a penguin or something then somehow you've got uh, a particular social status but in actual fact What's going on here is an arena where there's not actually a lot of money to be made. And, no. <laughs> you know, what's really going on actually is, uh, is a mismatch between the economic and, and perhaps the, you know, the cultural or the social. And I think you nail this down with this lovely chapter title, which I ended up tweeting about because I liked it so much. How $6,000 becomes a middle class income. And I wonder if you could kind of tell that story, actually, you know, that kind of tension between being an author, but also basically never getting paid.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, it, and I think the starting place here is that throughout history, um, almost, you know, authors are almost exclusively limited to uh, two types of people. Uh, and that's people with multigenerational wealth uh, and people with a spouse or partner that makes enough income that allows them to be authors, right? Uh, So this isn't about the ability to write or the ability to be creative. It's about the ability to pay one's rent while writing, right? Um, So uh, going back into this uh, transition, uh, we really, uh, in the humanities, uh, social scientists haven't noticed this because we don't really study the lives of creatives as much as we should. Uh, We tend to overemphasize uh, industry in production. So right under our noses, uh, we've had this massive sea change in how artists earn incomes and earn livings. Uh, my friend Alison Gerber has a new book that's coming out right now on fine artists. Uh, and She makes the same argument. We've been making this argument together. Um, so uh, we're really living what in the humanities people call the program era. Uh, and by the program era, what they mean is the rise of teaching uh, and fine arts programs is a way to make a living while being an artist and while being an author Uh, so uh that's really uh it's dramatically changed uh the lives of authors the lives of poets the lives of fine artists and dancers uh and comparatively it's actually uh authors uh work less in teaching than people in other arts so fine artists and dancers uh and actor's work, uh, generate much more of their income from teaching than do novelists. Uh, but still, uh, the majority of novelists in the United States today, I think about 59% uh, have or currently work as teachers as a way to generate income.
0: I mean, that, yeah, it is paralleled by, by lots of other research that's been, been going on, for example, yeah. over here in, in the UK. And it's interesting because it, it tells us something about not just, I suppose, the kind of financial model for authorship. Yeah. And you know, we'll discuss that a bit more in the in turn. But also it tells us something again about social location and the impact on the work itself. And I suppose if we return to the book, it's interesting how the book itself sort of straddles that, you know, coming from at least the impression I get in, in your narrative of it, it's quite a kind of academic context, you know, with the reading group and, and the MFA and discussions yeah. of how you know first person or evil characters you know should be uh kind of located versus the demands of you know how can we sell this as a sort of literary slash historical novel and i wonder you know what the title itself might tell us about in the second chapter you know has got this thing about how the book ended up being called what it's called and i wonder if you could sort of tell that story as a as an illustration of these these different worlds that it crosses
1: Sure. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the book was not always titled Jarrettsville, uh, and just to give a brief backstory of what Jarrettsville is. Uh, so Jarrettsville is a uh, historical fiction novel that covers a true story from Cornelia Nixon's family history. And what that story is is that in uh, post-bellum Jarrettsville, Maryland, so immediately following the Civil War. In Jarrett'sville, which is two or three miles uh, south of the Mason-Dixon line, which was the dividing line of the north and south in the Civil War, uh, one of Cornelia Nixon's uh, ancestors, Martha Jane Cairns, uh, was from a southern supporting family and ended up in a relationship with a uh, uh, union—a man from a union family uh, with an abolitionist preacher father— she becomes pregnant. They break up. And then Martha Jane Cairns uh, shoots uh, Nicholas McComas multiple times in the chest in front of 50 eyewitnesses uh, and essentially murders him uh, on a parade a few years later, celebrating the Confederate surrender. Um, and ultimately what happens? So this story was a uh, front page news in The New York Times at the time. Uh, it ended up being covered in Ripley's Believe It or Not throughout the 1950s and then was kind of forgotten about. But ultimately, Martha Shakirns is found innocent on uh, these very made up grounds of what uh, in the trial was termed justifiable homicide. Um, So Cornelia Nixon uh, really was a literary fiction author who was winning a bunch of literary awards, really well respected among her peer authors. But nobody had ever heard of her Uh, her books weren't selling. So she thought of Jarrett's, well, this is in her terminology as her ace in the hole. It was her chance to finally found and find an audience For her writing that had been well loved by famous reviewers and well respected by other novelists, but she didn't have actually readers. So when she was writing Jarrettsville, she had this kind of competing, uh, it wasn't quite a tension, but an awareness that, like, this is my blockbuster. This is my chance to achieve true popularity. Uh, So her first draft of Jarrettsville, the entire novel is told from Martha's perspective, right? The perspective of the eventual murderer. And it was titled Martha's Version. Uh, What happened is she uh, her literary agent sent it out to about 20 different publishers. It was rejected by all of them. Cornelia Nixon dug back into her rejection letters uh, and from those rejection letters realized that uh, the story didn't work because nobody understood Nick's motivations. Right. Uh, Nick just came off as some type of cad. Uh, So she went back and rewrote. Uh, She kept uh, she rewrote the novel so that now uh, in its final form or I would say in the second draft of the novel, the first third is told from Martha's perspective, the second third uh, is told from Nick's perspective, and the final third of the novel she wrote from the perspective of multiple characters of the town. Uh, At this point, she realized she needed a new title because it wasn't Martha's version anymore, so she uh, wrote out a list of about 15 titles and took it to a writing group, hoping that they could help her pick which title she should use for the novel. Um, And instead, you know, it's that classic example of them saving her from herself. Uh, They essentially said... Cornelia, we love you, but all of these titles suck. These are awful titles for your novel. Um, and somebody in the room had suggested, how about just Jarrett'sville, right? This isn't a story about a relationship between two people. It's not just that, but it's also a story about a place and a time and a town. Uh, and Jarrett'sville is a really appropriate title. Uh, and she ended up going with it. Uh, there was still one more change Jarrett'sville had to make, which is uh, the press that did accept Jarrett'sville at that point Um was, uh, it's a literary imprint, it's an independent uh, press, but uh, has a well-hold uh, reputation for literary fiction. Uh, so the accepting editor for the novel was very worried reading the first section by Martha. Uh, his major concern was, this might be confused for a romance novel. Uh, the euphemism he used was, it was so sunny. Uh, It's so sunny and optimistic readers uh, might think this is a romance novel. They might be blindsided that a murder happens Uh, and counterpoint press, uh, the publisher that published it, they can't publish romance fiction. Um, It would hurt their literary reputation. Uh, They just don't know what to do with romance fiction. They don't have any connections uh, to the romance fiction world or to promote a romance fiction novel. So his solution to that problem was to take the immediate aftermath of the murder, uh, as told by other uh, characters in the story and essentially cut that from two thirds of the way through the book and move it up to the front to tell the story out of order. Um, And what that did was to clarify uh, to readers from page one that like a murder is going to take place. This is not a romance novel. Uh, You know, if you love romance novels, you'll probably be pretty disappointed in this book. And it also introduced this complexity of form. So it uh, made the novel more literary in a sense as well. It uh, got the novel back in balance between uh, Cornelia Nixon's aspirations to be a popular novelist, but also a novelist with a literary reputation. Uh, Sorry for the long answer, but that's what's going on in there.
0: No, but it shows so clearly the social structures around um, this novel. And, you know, it it sort of, on the one hand, punctures narratives of authorial... uh, Intention or genius, but also points us towards the need for a a sociological analysis. And I guess there's maybe, you know, we might think about three bits um, of a media analysis in uh, the field of production. So there's Mm -hmm. the transition with the literary agent, there's the role of the editor, and then there's how the industry is structured in terms of um, how, you know, books are delivered to stores and order runs and stuff like this. And I wonder if you could sketch, you know, broadly uh, what. In part three of the book, uh, you call the the field of production surrounding the book. Yeah. Uh, You
1: know, so uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, So, you know, the first thing is the transition in the literary agent. Um, And, you know, one of the things I was really interested in is if these are different fields, if authors are off in their own world and publishers are off in their own world, how do things get from here to there? Um, And the answer is literary agents um, who I think Uh, traditionally get treated as gatekeepers, you know, and from the perspective of an author who can't get a publishing contract, a literary agent is just a gatekeeper. But uh, literary agents uh, are also uh, gatekeeping is their least favorite part of their job. They prefer to think of themselves as matchmakers. Um, And their job is really to keep one foot in the field of authors and in the world of authors and to be able to communicate with authors in the language that authors use and another foot in the world of publishers and to be able to communicate uh, with publishers too. And their job essentially is to be translators, to take the language and the ideas that authors use and to reformulate them um, into a language that makes sense to publishers. Um, one of the things that happens in this transition is that uh, as a tool of specialization, literary agents, Uh, prefer to work on books and really select books as based on books that uh, speak to them and their own interests and their own experiences. So a literary agent um, with no compunction whatsoever will say, hey, I'm from Boston. If your story is set in Boston, I want to read your book. Or You know, my favorite football team or my favorite baseball team is this. So if you're writing about that, send me that book. And they winnow this oversupply of manuscripts as based on their own personal tastes. They also winnow their uh, oversupply of manuscripts by having a, a relationships with editors as we transition into the publishing process. Uh, so editors and agents kind of speak this blended pigeon language uh, between two fields and are really more like each other than anybody else in this entire process. Uh, part of this is because of the history of literary agents and that many of them uh, used to work in publishing houses. So over 50% of literary agents in the United States got their, uh, got their start in book publishing. Um, The job of the editor, then, is to uh, take this enthusiasm that the literary agent has and, again, translate it into a language that makes sense to people in the publishing house. So an editor's uh, job is not only to find manuscripts, but uh, also to shepherd and parent the manuscripts they find by... A word that one of my interlocutors used was by infecting other people with enthusiasm. The editor is probably the last person before a reviewer who actually read a full manuscript. So she really has to get other people excited and on board. She uses her enthusiasm as uh, what I essentially argue is a form of capital. It's the sharpest arrow in her quiver to either... uh, uh, bestow all of her enthusiasm onto a title because she wants to work on it, right? It's a way she manages her job and her autonomy to do what she wants. Or she also withholds enthusiasm. If there's a lot of uh, outside enthusiasm, if a book is under auction and everybody in the industry is getting really excited about it, uh, if she doesn't want to work on it, to manage her work life, she will selectively withhold her enthusiasm. Would it, do you want an example here of like something that an editor did with Jarrett's bill? Absolutely, be yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, the editor of Jarrettsville, a young editor named Adam Craftman. uh, So they uh, hired a freelance copy editor and the freelance copy editor uh, after she finished copy editing the book in a private email to Adam Craftman said, oh, and by the way, uh, you can tell the author that while copy editing the book, I cried twice. And he got a little sparkle in his eye. And his reaction wasn't to tell Cornelia Nixon that the copy editor was moved by the story because what Cornelia Nixon thinks doesn't really matter. Instead, for the next week or so, he would just walk throughout the publishing house and share this anecdote. Hey, got the uh, copy edits back for Hill. The copy editor cried twice. Hey, did I mention to you that the copy editor cried twice? Because he is strategically letting people know we might have something really special here, right? He's already been saying this, but to have this third-party evaluation, this totally unaffiliated person, a freelance copy editor, is moved to tears uh, is essentially for him to declare to everybody, let's start coordinating around this title. This is a big deal. Um, so it's that type of enthusiasm uh, that really makes some books travel and others not.
0: I mean, that enthusiasm, I think, is, is really interesting as you transition yeah. away from production and into reception. So um, you've got quite an interesting discussion of book reviews and, and the uh, the Omerta of um, yeah, of the book review, which is a, a term I, I really liked in the kind of, yeah, the, uh, the closed shop of, of, uh, of on the one hand, the kind of, you know, authorial world, um, uh-huh. but how essentially that world, you know, really shapes and is, is really important um, in determining reception. So as a transition towards questions of reception, I wonder if you could talk me through um, book reviews.
1: Yeah. So uh, I think just as a little bit of background, uh, I think American sociologists, when they see reviewers, uh, they ask one question. The question they tend to ask is uh, they say, you know, like everybody, they say, oh, book reviewers are kind of intermediaries. They're brokers between production and reception. And what Americanists ask is. Oh, that's a weird brokerage role. Are they allegiant to publishers or are they allegiant to readers? And how do they balance that allegiance? Um, And in a more Bordeauxian perspective, uh, people who adhere more to uh, the sociologist Pierre Bordeaux, they say, well, book reviewers are allegiant to each other. Uh, They want to win the battle among book reviewers to be the most prestigious and highest status book reviewer. Uh, and in the book, I say, for book publishing in particular, that's not really the case. Their allegiance falls somewhere else because of who they are. Uh, what makes book reviewing different than, let's say, uh, film reviewing or restaurant reviewing is that the vast, vast majority of people who review books are also authors. So when you ask where their allegiances lie, their allegiances lie to other authors, not to readers, not to publishers, not to being the best book reviewer. That's just kind of a sideline activity for most of these people. But at the end of the day, uh, the way they make sense of the world is among the world of authors. So uh, the term I uh, argue that best explains this is what I call author omerta. And omerta is the Sicilian mafia code of silence. Um, so the shape that that takes is that... Uh, It's pretty rare to come across exceedingly negative book reviews. Major criticisms get rewritten into faint praise. Or if an author reads a book and is supposed to review it and doesn't have anything nice to say about it, uh, she'll just decline the review more often than not. Um, we know, so it's, uh, in a weird way, it's this field level collusion, uh, is the term I use to talk about it. And we know this exists because of where the system doesn't take hold, right? Uh, so I have a lot of, in the book, I interview a lot of reviewer authors who uh, are quite open that they do this and that this is just the way things are done, but it's, uh, where book, negative book reviews do appear that further confirms that this system really takes place. You really only see strongly negative book reviews, uh, or i would say most frequently see strongly negative book reviews uh in three ways it's when a professional reviewer who is not an author themselves reviews a book uh they don't adhere to the code that would be number 1 uh number 2 if there's an exceptionally famous author uh who has written a second book that book might get panned very harshly by another author right because uh they actually do feel like they're doing a service uh, to readers where readers uh, would read that book anyway. Uh, so the Code of Omerta is really for uh, non-famous authors. It's a favor done for other non-famous authors. There's no point in bashing somebody in print that readers won't read anyway. As one reviewer said it, all you're doing is damage to the author's psyche. And the third place that we really see Omerta being broken is in reviews in Publishers Weekly and Kirkus. That's really important because, number one, Publishers Weekly and Kirkus are industry trade publications. Readers don't read them. And more importantly, Publishers Weekly and Kirkus are the only two venues in which reviews are anonymous. So in the book, uh, I uh, probably extend the metaphor a little bit too far and say, we know the code of Omerta exists because among most reviewers, it's only broken in Publishers Weekly and Kirkus, which is like uh, snitching from within the Witness Protection Program. Nobody knows your name. Nobody knows that you're the one who did it.
0: <laughs> it's an excellent metaphor. Um, okay. The final, I'm trying to think of the word, you know, kind of pole of the great stool that is literary <laughs> publishing <laughs> is, uh, is, is Reader's. Um, and you've got a couple of chapters at the end of the book on on readers, and again, you know, we, we're talking about reviews, you know, and the kind of uh-huh. service to the readers, and you know, setting the kind of mood music for the reception of the book, along with all this, you know, all the stuff that the industry is doing. Yeah. What what are some of the reactions that readers had to Jarrettsville? You, you, you know, there were in the book. You talk about it prompted discussions of race, southernness, uh-huh. what it means to live in the town itself. You know, yeah. and also crucially. I suppose, the kind of social location or the uh, broader demographic characteristics that shape uh, readers' receptions. Absolutely, yeah. And so there's uh,
1: two major – so just to give a little background – after. So I followed Jarrett's Bill through this whole process. I studied Cornelia Nixon, and then I worked at the publisher – Well, they published the book and I uh, followed the book out into the world of bookstores and reviewers. And then I took the novel into 21 book groups across the United States and studied people while they read it. Um, So I have two chapters on that. Um, And in uh, cutesy little titles, uh, the first chapter is called Reading Life into Novels. And the idea there is that, uh, you know, readers show up to a novel and they have their whole lives behind them and they use their lives as a tool to make sense of what this novel is. Right. So what that means, uh, uh, as I find and argue is that readers for readers from the South, uh, Jarrett's bill is a novel about love and loss. Right. Uh, whereas for readers from the North, uh, it's not really about that same thing. Readers from the South, uh, see racism in the civil war is being hugely influential, uh, in what happens in the outcome of this story. Whereas readers from the North tend to blame Martha or Nick, they see it, uh, uh, rather than this story of structure and how it impinges on the lives of individual people, they see it uh, really as a story of moral failings among the characters in a way that Southern readers don't. Um, and then in the next chapter, uh, so that chapter was reading life into novels, the next chapter flips the metaphor and it's reading novels into life. It's not that readers just take their backgrounds and imprint them onto this manuscript, uh, Jarrett's but they also then take Jarrettsville and really use it as a starting point, as a catalyst to share their own experiences and talk about their own lives with each other. If in book groups all people did was talk about the book, book groups probably wouldn't exist, right? That's not really the point of a book group. Uh, a book group uses a book as a catalyst for people to talk about each other and to share their own lives. Uh, so with Jarrett's bill, uh, because of the story itself, the contents of the story itself, um, while people start off talking about the novel across these 21 book groups, they then launch into making sense of their own lives, uh, largely about uh, romantic relationships. Right, So they take Martha and Nick's relationship and start staring, uh, sharing with each other about their own uh, romantic problems or uh, feelings the book brought up in them. Uh, and then their fellow book group uh, members uh, talk about it and talk through these problems about uh, backgrounds of racism or experiences with racism. Uh, You know, in this one provocative moment, a book group of Southern readers. So Nick, uh, excuse me, uh, Richard is Martha's brother uh, and was very likely a militia member with John Wilkes Booth in history uh, and is just a villain. He's an awful, awful person. Uh, But this book group of Southern women uh, then started applying this awful character. Uh, to their own lives and to people they know. And they're from Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, So they talk about the history of racism in their family or relatives who they still love and who they can't not love, but who are deeply racist. Um, And in the process, uh, they don't they become empathetic of Richard. They feel bad for him. They uh, think that he, you know, like my like their uncle or uh, their cousin are trapped in this masculinist code of Southern honor. Um, so they really take the novel and also use it. Uh, it's this dialogical process of using it to make sense of their own lives and also using their own lives to make sense of the novel. Um, and then the final part of that chapter, uh, profiles this one woman who I named Sandy, uh, who, uh, lives in Jarrettsville, Maryland. So I spent a couple days in Jarrettsville, Maryland, studying people who lived there as they read Jarrettsville. And she is part of, she is one of very few interracial families in Jarrettsville, Maryland. She's white, Uh, her husband is African American and her kids are biracial. Um, And reading Jarrett'sville was really um, somewhat traumatic for her as it dredged up uh, the past 30 years of uh, racism she's faced in the town. And her takeaway is like, we haven't changed. Like everything from the 1890s is still the way it is today. Uh, So for her, Jarrett'sville was uh, really a catalyst. She uh, spent the next month Uh, trying to create book groups to talk about Jarrettsville with her as a way to uh, introduce uh, her experiences and so that she could feel less less alone in her experiences that she's felt in the town. And the argument there is really that, um, you know, culture isn't just something that people make sense of or just imprint their lives onto, but uh, sometimes people also use it as a tool for action, as a way to try to change their lives and their social experiences around them.
0: I mean, that um, spectre of, of racism brings us into the conclusion where you explicitly engage with inequalities, uh, yeah. which is interesting because I think one of the things the book does really well is is almost kind of take at face value the things that um, the different constituencies in the process of producing the novel say. So, you know, you talk about how editors legitimize their decisions by talking about their tastes, and you mention you know, agents and they're kind of like, you know, well, I'm from Boston, blah, 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 you know, yeah. this kind of stuff. And then, <laughs> yeah. you know, the payoff to the book is actually, this is a highly socially um, stratified and structured um, set of fields. Uh, and yeah. there are really obvious inequalities. And, you know, one of them is, is around uh, race and the effective, you know, kind of exclusion of those who don't fit a particular norm of being, you know, affluent white people who dominate publishing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, uh, I think, uh, I think we can think about this in two different ways. I think, uh, we can think about the demographics, um, of it. And I think we can think about, uh, the culture of it. Um, and I think you really need both sides of that, uh, to make sense of it and to make any policy prescriptions. You know, I think, uh, you and I might be in a little bit of agreement that, uh, we sometimes treat demographic, we substitute in everything we want for, we, for just demographics, right? Um, So in this case, uh, the demographics really do matter. Uh, So uh, for literary agents, we can talk about is, uh, you know, quote unquote, gatekeepers to the world of book publishing. Um, In the United States, uh, according to my data, 3% of literary agents in the United States are black or Latino. In 2015, there were two uh black male literary agents that I could find in the entire United States. Uh since then more might have come, but I can say for certain that those two have left the industry. And because of how literary agents do their job, uh that ends up being massively consequential. Uh, so with quantitative data I can show that uh white literary agents, uh which are about ninety-six percent of literary agents in the United States, are uh much more likely to be willing, uh, much excuse me, much less likely to be willing to represent works of uh, ethnic or multicultural fiction, which are code words for literary fiction with non-white main characters, than are non-white literary agents. And there's a big mismatch between this underrepresentation of literary agents and uh, readers for literature, people who self-report. Uh, high rates of reading literature for pleasure in the United States. So we have about 3% of uh, black or Latino literary agents in the United States, uh, whereas over 20% of people in the United States who read literature for pleasure are black and Latino. Um, That really matters because of the cultural component, because literary agents are selecting manuscripts as based on their own experiences. Uh, In my interviews and observations of literary agents – They're more diverse in their reading practice when not at work than when at work, right? Um, And their personal reading habits, uh, like many people, they read to inhabit the lives of people unlike themselves. But when working, part of doing good work is to specialize in the things that are most familiar to you. This gets replicated with uh, editors also. So the question is, what do you do about this? Is that kind of where we're going with this? I just want to make sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. You know, the, it it really is the obvious question yeah. that I guess, you know, kind of the book poses at the end. You know, you could read this system as, you know, quite benign. You know, it, it means that you know, some authors get to have a living and they get social status, publishing, you know, broadly speaking works for those within it. But there are just these, you know, kind of crucial social exclusions as soon as you ask any kind of demographic questions.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so because it's interdependent um – you know, the obvious policy prescription that people always give is, well, we need more diversity. Uh, and I don't want to diminish that. That's uh, absolutely true. But I think it's also worth uh, focusing on uh, the what happens uh, with the diverse representations we do have. Uh, so in the book I talk about, uh, I interview uh, a lot of authors of color, non-white authors, black and Latino uh, and Asian authors, uh, and they really find themselves, uh, first of all, Uh, is one uh, now uh, somewhat famous uh, author, a uh, black uh, fiction, nonfiction writer and uh, memoirist told me, he said, we're aware of who the editors are. It's not like we don't know. Um, And so he finds himself really trapped having to write towards these acquisition editors who he knows don't share his experience. So he says, I'm like fighting in my mind, trying to synthesize what I know is true about these characters that I'm writing with how I need to, I know I need to convey them to acquisition editors who don't have any familiarity or personal experience with the characters like the ones I'm writing about. Right. Um, So uh, many uh, non-white authors talk about uh, to get published, it's almost like you have to whitewash or rewrite your story in a, into a way that makes sense to people who don't share that social milieu. And then when you get to the marketing and publicity and promotion stage, um, the reverse happens, right? Um, and things get pitched is like, uh, not being anything more than a story about people who aren't white. Uh, so as a Asian American, uh, uh, writer who had just written a short story collection said, uh, She went to her publisher when they were at the cover design stage and she said, like, you can do anything you want with the cover, but please just don't put any fireworks on it. Like, please just don't put any lanterns on it. These are stories about people. I know they're Chinese American people, but they are stories about people. So the publisher put goldfish on the cover. Right. Uh, And as she said, it's the only thing I left them. Uh, So regretfully. Right. Right. so uh, I do think uh, we need to focus on uh, increasing diversity uh, within these fields, but we also need to focus on the lives of experiences of people from diverse backgrounds who are already there. You know, I think a really important statistic that's worth sharing is, uh, according to publishers' uh, weekly salary survey data, which is the most robust survey, survey data of this industry, white editors, uh, their most frequent job complaint is that they feel overworked, Right. For non-white editors, their most frequent job complaint is they think they have a lack of opportunity for advancement, right? Non-white book publishing professionals are significantly more likely to say they plan on leaving the industry. So it's not just, you know, to say we just need to diversify can almost – it's both an easy answer um, and a simple answer and an answer that – is this kind of, like, binary, well, we just need to do this one thing and then all our problems are solved, and that's really not the case. Uh, Even for uh, folks from diverse backgrounds in the industry, they, too, are experiencing inequality, and they're leaving the industry uh, because of it. I think uh, another concern, and this will be the last point here, is that um, just diversifying the workforce isn't enough. That hopefully soon-to-come diverse workforce, it's worth saying also that... um, the publishing industry in the United States, uh, isn't any more diverse than it was 25 to 30 years ago. Uh, the Association of American Publishers did a diversity survey, uh, in the late 1970s, uh, and they had the same rate of diversity that, uh, it was found in 2016, right? Uh, so this narrative of things always getting better, uh, probably not that accurate. Um, in addition to, uh, this diversity of, uh, workforce, you, uh, editors, need to be given the same autonomy, um, the same uh, tools to use enthusiasm to get their way uh, that editors still uh, exhibit today. So uh, we can imagine a scenario with an incredibly diverse workforce of literary agents and editors, but uh, in which that autonomy in making decisions is stripped away, that diversity of representation isn't going to change anything. So you really need that culture of autonomy of really trusting editors and letting editors manage what they do and what books they work on plus diversifying the workforce of editors at the same time that's the key
0: is that the kind of thing that you're going to be doing uh, i guess kind of kind of next you know in terms of um the intellectual project following the book or you know is it time for something completely different
1: yeah uh, so that is uh one of the things i'm doing uh so uh i'm still looking into those questions really deeply uh Uh, The details of which uh, I don't want to go into too much because it involves a bit of experimental design. Um, But I'm looking at that. Um, I'm getting more deeply into the relationship between sociodemographics and interpersonal influence in book clubs uh, and what uh, is really kind of driving the story there. Um, I think as sociologists, we lean incredibly hard on sociodemographics as the way that people make sense of things. Um, and the early and the premonitions uh, or the findings I'm getting from this data uh, show that that's not the case. So uh, before the book groups talked to each other, uh, men and women didn't read Jarrett's Bill any differently from each other. There wasn't a male or a female reading of Jarrett's Bill. But what happened is then uh, because people self-segregate in book groups into people like themselves, uh, women would get together to meet and talk about Jarrett'sville and men would get together to meet and talk about Jarrett'sville. There were one or two mixed gender book groups too. Um, and after the book groups, uh, you see what you think are these huge gender differences in what the story means, but that's just kind of an after effect of the fact that women all talk to each other. It wasn't a female reading. It was uh, all these women happened to get in a room together or chose to get in a room together and they create a female reading in the process. So I'm looking at that. Uh, and then uh, you know, for our next project, I knew I wanted to study something all the way through, Uh, and at the time, out of fear, uh, I didn't study the thing I wanted to study. I've always loved fiction, and I decided to study fiction uh, because a lot of people write about book publishing. But uh, I'm really excited to kind of uh, take this model that I've proposed and constructed and take it to another cultural field and really try to break it. Um, you know, I don't think there's any point in uh, making an argument about a better way we should be doing things unless you're willing to try to break it yourself. So I think I, 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 I want to port this same idea into another cultural arena and uh, prove myself wrong is really what I'm looking to do.
0: Thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I was talking to Clayton Childress about his new book, Under the Cover, The Creation, Production, and Reception of a Novel.